If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We continue in this chapter that we started last week. It is the beginning of the final third of this book, the final four chapters, 10, 11, 12, and 13, in which the Apostle Paul speaks directly to the difficulties and challenges caused by false teachers in the church at Corinth. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. We look this morning at 2 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 7, reading through verse 18. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say... His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we come into your presence to hear from you in your word. We know that your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that your word is life to us, O Lord. May you sustain us by your truth. And as we study your word, may you teach us more about who you are, more about what you have done for us, and more of what duty you require of us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We might ask ourselves the question, is confidence wrong in the Christian? Is it wrong to have confidence within the church? 
Or put it this way, are we able to boast while still being meek and gentle? And if we are confident, how can we do this without putting us ourselves in front of our Lord Jesus Christ, as if somehow we are the ones to be emphasized? Paul shows here in our text this morning the difference between his opponents who boasted in themselves and Paul who boasted in the Lord and his gospel. And so this morning as we take up this second section of chapter 10, we take up the subject of Paul's gospel boasting. Boasting in the gospel. And this is something that Paul did and that he encourages you and me to do as well. I'd like us to see three aspects of gospel boasting this morning. First, we see that gospel boasting arises from a godly character. It starts or arises from a godly character. Second, gospel boasting focuses on others. It is not self-centered, it is other-centered. And then thirdly, gospel boasting results in humility. It arises from a godly character, it focuses on others, and then it results, finally, in humility. This is gospel boasting. Let's begin then by looking at how gospel boasting arises from a godly character. Now, Paul wants us and the Corinthians to see the reality of life, the reality that the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is the foundation of our godly character. And so, Paul is not writing theoretically here. He's not presenting an impossible-to-achieve scenario to you and to me. And that's why he starts in verse 7, Look what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so are we. Now, this verb, look, can be rendered one of two ways, and there are differing translations. And that's because the Greek form could either be an indicative verb, that is, it states a fact. You are looking at what's in front of you. Paul would be saying, you're just looking at the surface. You need to get down to the heart. Don't just look at the obvious. But I think the better way to translate this is as an imperative, as a command. Look at what is before you. We might put it this way. Face the facts. They're right before the nose on your face. And the reason Paul would say this is, the question that would come is, if you know the facts, why would you go rushing off after these false teachers? Paul would ask the Corinthians. You know what is going on here. You know me. You know them. What is causing you to follow them. Now, I think it's at this point that we need to remind ourselves or get some understanding of whom Paul's opponents are. What were they like? Now, as he so often does, Paul does not name his opponents by name. He doesn't even give us 
details of their errors. He doesn't repeat verbatim their false teaching. And so the way that we can understand who his opponents are is by pulling together Paul's statements about the problems at Corinth and the difficulties throughout this letter. And we can see a few basic facts about them. First, they came from outside Corinth. They were not native to Corinth. We know this because they needed letters of recommendation from others. They were completely unknown to the Corinthians. The Corinthians did not know much about them at all. As a matter of fact, the only thing they would have known about their, their lives is what Paul's opponents had told them. The second thing that we know is, is that they claimed super authority. They claimed to be more authoritative than Paul. Paul actually calls them later in this letter the super apostles. And that is Paul, if you have not heard him, listen to him here, using sarcasm. They were not men who walked around with a big red A on their chest or a big S on their chest, super apostle. No, what Paul is saying is they thought a big deal of themselves. The third thing that we see is, is that they were Judaizers. That is, in a Gentile city like Corinth, they thought that Gentiles needed to become Jews. They needed to follow all of the strictures of the Jewish law, the, the clothing laws, the laws around food, all of the circumstances of the Old Testament. And this is not unlike what Paul met in the church at Galatia or the church at Philippi. Throughout Paul's ministry, he had those who were trying to pull his churches away from Jesus Christ and back to the laws of the Old Testament. But the interesting thing is, the fourth thing we know about them is that they were immoral. And they led others into immorality. They cared about the fine things of the law, the circumstances of the law, but they didn't care about the substance. They didn't care about staying pure and being holy. They were immoral. And then fifthly, they were mercenary-minded. That is, they went from church to church demanding payments for their services. They would never teach or preach or do ministry except if they got paid. And this makes them the polar opposite of Paul, who took no money from the Corinthians, who supported himself through his own occupation and through the giving of other churches. These are Paul's opponents. But the key here that we need to know about them is that they were self-confident. They claimed that they were deep, mature Christians. But they didn't have any fruit of their profession. It didn't show in their life. And instead, what they said was they were confident in themselves, Paul tells us in verse 7. The Greek is actually interesting. This word for confident is two words. It means they were convinced in themselves. They had set themselves up as a standard. They knew who they were, and that should be enough for everyone else. Now, this shows us the importance of gospel fruit. If we know Jesus Christ, he will make us more like 
himself. And that evidence will confirm our relationship with Jesus to others. And so Paul, on the other hand, was willing to let Jesus' work speak for him. He said, it's not just my personal opinion. And don't let these opponents tell you that they're the only ones who are Christians. No, he says, if they say that they are Christ, so are we. And, and Paul had evidence of his relationship with Jesus. He could point to the Damascus Road appearance. He could say, go ask Ananias. He had a, a record of churches that he had built. He had a record of converts that he had brought to Jesus Christ. He had the testimony of his co-workers like Barnabas who could testify to the miracles that he had performed and the powerful preaching that he had given. And so at this point, Paul is not denying his opponent's claim to Christ, but they are denying that Paul belongs to Jesus. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look at me. You know me. You know that I love the Lord. Now, we need to be careful when we judge others. The Corinthians were spectacularly immature believers. How do we know this? Can you imagine that they doubted the profession? of the very man who brought the gospel to them. They doubted that Paul believed in Jesus, and the only reason they even knew about Jesus is because Paul told them about Jesus. So the very first thing that we see here is that gospel boasting arises from a godly character, and that godly character is founded on a relationship with Christ. Paul shows us that. Then the second thing that we see is that godly character shows itself in integrity. Paul discusses this in verses 10 and 11 in response to the attacks that have been brought against him. He says, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that, when, that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Now, this is an attack. We know this because of the way Paul phrases it. They say. Now, I think Paul here is choosing again not to name his opponents. But this is often how attacks come in the church. There is a phrase that sends a chill down every pastor's back. People are saying. Really? Who? Which people? Now, I want to encourage you that if you feel the need to send an anonymous critical letter to the, to the church office, critical of me or my staff or our elders, I will give it all the deference that it is due, taking about the five seconds it takes to take the letter from my hand to the wastebasket. You see, anonymous criticism has no place in the church and even the Apostle Paul was not immune to it. They were accusing Paul of inconsistency, of deception. They said, sure, he can write heavy and strong letters, but when he's up close, he's a weakling. He's unimpressive. 
He can't hide his weakness behind the paper anymore. There are even accounts that perhaps Paul was of small physical appearance and that they used that against Paul. And they said, his way of speaking, it's a joke. It amounts to nothing. Who would possibly want to listen to Paul? You would never hire Paul to headline your conference speakers. He's weak in the pulpit, weak when he speaks. There's even an idea here in the way they say that it amounts to nothing. It is of no account that they held Paul in contempt. That Paul, in their mind, didn't even bother to learn the basics of oratory. And after all, they were experts in all rhetorical flourish and in all of the mannerisms required by polite society. Now, this accusation that they made against Paul was an old and common one. They used Paul's gentleness and care that he describes in verse 1 of this chapter as an accusation against him that he was weak. And because Paul did not rely on eloquent speech or bluster, but rather he spoke plainly and directly to the people that he might reach their hearts, they said that he was weak and unimportant. But Paul reminds them that he is the same there that he is here. And he does it in a pointed way, almost as if to turn his opponent's argument on themselves. He says, when I show up, I'm going to be the same Paul of my letters. Watch out. Watch what you ask for. You're going to see who Paul is. Now, we might almost think of this in a humorous way in our own households. <clears throat> there are certain times when <clears throat> the children are being a bit rambunctious upstairs. And mom or dad calls up from the couch, hey, knock it off. Quiet down. And yet it continues on and on. And then there comes a point where mom or dad will say, don't make me come up there. You won't like it if I have to come up there. You're going to see who I am. That's what Paul's doing here. He wants the Corinthians to know that he is the same away from them that he is with them. He is a man of consistency. He is a man of integrity. He's not two-faced. You see, that's what he's being accused of, of being a liar, of being two-faced, of having no integrity. And what Paul tells us is that godly character is founded upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then that character shows itself in the integrity of our life. We are not called to put on an act for church or for church friends. We are to be real. We are to be who we are. We are to be whom Jesus made us to be. Then the third and fourth things that we see about gospel boasting come under the category of focusing on others, of being other-focused as opposed to self-focused. Gospel boasting is not self-boasting. We saw that at the very outset of this passage. Look around you, Paul writes. Look and see what you see. 
Don't think that you are so special. If you say you are in Christ, remember that others are also. And this character that Jesus is forming, is forming us into His image. And so, we are to focus on others just as Jesus focuses on others. Paul writes that his boasting is not self-directed, but that is directed to the building up of the church. That's the third thing that we see. That gospel boasting builds up the church. This is a, a critical aspect of gospel boasting. It's, I think, one of the main reasons why we can speak of boasting in a positive way. I'm sure that when you looked at the title of this sermon or you heard me talking about boasting, you were a bit confused because boasting, we assume, is bad. It's what a braggart does. It's what someone who's full of themselves does. It can't possibly be good to boast. And for the most part, that's what the Bible teaches us. James says, your bo you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And Paul writes, in 1 Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Proverbs compares the man who boasts to a cloud and a wind without rain. That is, it is of no benefit to anyone. But here, Paul makes an important distinction. His boasting is focused on others. He boasts in what they have become as a church. And he introduces this in a humble fashion in verse 8. He says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. He says, If I boast a little bit about the authority that God has given to me, there is a reason for that. God gave me this authority so that I can build you up. Now, there is a contrast here that Paul is raising. He is building up. He is not destroying. And after all, that is, of course, what his opponents are doing. They are destroying the work in Corinth. They are undermining his authority. They are setting the Corinthians against each other. They are hurting the witness of the church and the community. And so, in essence, what Paul is saying is, you are the evidence of my boasting. It's not really about me, it's about you. Look around you, he might say. Were you a church before I came? And now, what do you see? The people of God in the midst of an unbelieving city testifying to the grace of God in the work of Jesus Christ. What have my efforts been focused on, Paul might ask? Getting benefits for me? No. Instead, building you up. That's what I have been focused on. Building you up in Christ. And so, Paul then takes a sharp jab at his opponents. He says, this is for building up, not for destroying you. And this word destroying is the same word we saw last week in verse 4 of chapter 10. It means to tear down, to undermine. And that's what the false teachers do. They tear down others to make themselves look better. 
Of necessity, they must push others down. They must disparage others so that they can look bigger in the limelight. This self-boasting requires undermining others in the church. Have you ever heard or even told a story in which you downplayed what others did in that incident so that you could play up your role? You could be the hero? You kind of cast shadows on them so that you could have the limelight? That's what self-boasting does of necessity. If we are going to have the light, everyone else must be pushed into the darkness. We have to have the light shining on us. And that's what Paul's opponents did. Now, Paul, on the other hand, absolutely knew how to destroy. He told us that in verse 4. But he destroyed the strongholds of the enemy, not the church. And so the third thing we see about gospel boasting is that it is focused on others, not self, and that this leads to the building up of the church. Then fourthly, when we focus on others, we cannot help but care for them. Now we might think of this fourth item, care for God's people, as a practical expression of the third that is building up of the church. The way you build up the church is you care for its people. That's what Paul tells us. And he picks this up in verse 9. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Now, he's building off the false accusation about his letters from his opponents. He's already told us that he's the same person in his letters that he is in person. He has integrity. And now he makes clear that it was never his intention to be overly harsh or frightening in his letters. He says, I don't even want to give the appearance of that. It's almost as if he says, when you read my letters, think about the man that I am when I'm with you. I told you that I'm the same person. Yes, that means that I'm not weak when I'm in person, but it also means I'm not trying to order you around by letter. And his language is very clear here. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you. I care for you so much, he says, that I don't want you to even misunderstand me. It would pain me if you thought this was true, even if it wasn't. Let, let's let there be no misunderstanding here. And then Paul says, I don't want you to be frightened. Now, this is a very intense word. It doesn't mean just to be afraid. We might translate it, and some translations do, with the word terrify. Now, you know the difference between being afraid and being terrified, right? When you're terrified, you jump at every little noise. You don't want to be by yourself. Your mind goes to every imagination that you could come up with. You shake with fear. And Paul says, I don't want to terrify you. Some people do want to terrify you into submission. As a matter of fact, that is the way of the Gentiles. It would be the way that the Corinthians were used to. Jesus tells us that in Matthew 20. The way of the Gentiles is to terrify their subjects into submission. 
But that is not the way of gospel boasting. Gospel boasting rejoices in others. It is focused on building up others, on caring for others. Do you go out of your way to build others up? Do others know that you care for them? Is your integrity and your godliness a benefit to others? Jesus is calling you now to think less about yourself, less about your needs, less about your status, and more about others. There is nothing more countercultural than that today. We live in the most me-centered culture in the world. Just take one example. Photography. It used to be that the photographer would set up his subject to put his subject in the best possible light with, for the best possible photo and would arrange everything around the subject of the photograph. What is the mainstay of modern photography? But the selfie, right? Look at what I'm doing. Look at who I'm with. Look where I am. Now, I don't mean to say this morning that you should never take a picture of yourself with your phone. But I do think it's indicative of our culture where all that matters is what I want, what I think. Listen to me. Look at me. Help me. And gospel boasting is about caring for others and serving them. Now we now move on to the last set of items concerning gospel boasting. There are two items that gospel boasting starts with character. Two items that remind us that gospel boasting is focused on others. And then finally, we have two items that show that gospel boasting results in humility. Now, the one who boasts in the gospel is actually humbled by it. And so, the fifth thing about the one who, po who boasts in the gospel is that he knows his limitations. He is humble. He knows he's limited. He doesn't think he's more than he is. He doesn't believe he's the solution to all problems, the wisdom for every question, the ruler of every person. And Paul shows us this in a variety of ways. In verse 12, he tells us that we should be limited in our comparisons with others. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Now you see, our tendency, and I dare say our preference, is to find the most flattering comparison that we can find for ourselves. We want to compare ourselves in a way that makes us look best. And so, when you ask someone, well, how did you manage to get a C in that class? The response often is, well, I did better than half the class. And then I often want to respond, which half? The half that is knowledgeable or not knowledgeable? The half that's going to get a job 
or not get a job? Why would you compare yourself there instead of comparing yourself against the standard of excellence? But you see, that's what we do all the time. And this is most deadly and dangerous in the realm of our spiritual life. We judge our spiritual life by others around us. And let me tell you, beloved, it will take very little effort on your part to look out into our society and to find dozens or hundreds of people that you are kinder than, nicer than, and have more spiritual interest than. But that doesn't mean you're alive in Christ. You don't compare yourself to the dead, to the wicked, to the ignorant. You compare yourself to the standard of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you seek after Him, to know Him, to be like Him. And so Paul says that these self-centered boasters not only want to find the best comparison that they can find, they want to measure themselves by themselves. Do you see this over and over again in verse 12? When they measure themselves by one another, and by that Paul means by themselves. There's a group of them, and they measure themselves in their small group. And they compare themselves with one another, with that small group. They want to be able to say that they're better than others, and the only way that that's easier than finding a low-grade comparison is to make yourself the standard. Right? If I were to say to you, we need to measure an Olympic-grade long jumper. And I know that I can long jump three feet if I say three feet is Olympic gold. And I know it because I can jump three feet. And that's Olympic grade. And I ignore everything else that is around me. Those that can jump eight, ten, twelve more feet. Because I set myself up as the standard. I set the standard exactly where I can reach it. Where I look the best. And that's what they're doing here. They are making themselves the standard for what is best. And surprise, they meet the standard. And others don't. Paul says, I would never do that. I wouldn't dare, is his language, to do that. Paul's not going to come to Corinth and tell everyone about how much better he is than everyone else. But the irony there is, he could. He could come to Corinth and say, how many of you, raise your hands, have written a Bible book? How many of you have seen the risen Christ and talked to him? How many of you have planted church upon church upon church? But Paul knows that kind of boasting is not gospel boasting, it's self-boasting, and he wants nothing to do with it. Then in verse 13, Paul says that the humble gospel boaster is willing to minister within limitations. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Paul was not a man of ego. God had given him a field to work. And he was content with that field. 
Now we know, for example, that Paul had a passion for his people, for the Jews. We read about that in Romans chapter 9. But God had not given Paul the ministry to the Jews. He'd given Paul the ministry to the Gentiles. And so that was where Paul limited himself. He didn't have to be all things. God had not given him that ministry. He had left it to others. Paul had an area of influence, a measured area, a limited area. And this idea of an area of influence has behind it the idea of a lane that you run in. Paul stayed in his lane. He didn't try to elbow people in the lane next to, that, to him so he could take over. He didn't try to take shortcuts. He didn't think he was bigger than his lane or that he was more important than this ministry. He said, God has given me this lane, this ministry, and I am going to work in it. I'm going to run with it. Then in verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us that a humble gospel boasting never takes credit for others' work. He says, for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others. This is again Paul understanding and acknowledging his own limitations. And he doesn't take credit for what others have done. Of course, this is exactly what his opponents did. They rolled into Corinth where there was a fully functioning, gospel-preaching, Jesus-believing church. And they acted like they had set it up. And that it was theirs to be in control of. Although they had nothing at all to do with it. Paul would never do this. He didn't take credit for something that he hadn't done. I won't boast beyond my limits, Paul says. I know my limitations. There is a humility about Paul's gospel boasting. We need to be especially aware of this today. Because this is how denominations get destroyed. This is how churches get destroyed. Seminaries get destroyed. People come in and claim for themselves what others have done. And then they seek to undermine it. Paul ends this section with a sixth thing that is part of gospel boasting. It is brief, but that's not because it's unimportant. It's actually, I think, the most important thing for us to think about. But it is simple and it is straightforward. And all we need to do is to hear it, believe it, and apply it. That is that gospel boasting only boasts in the Lord. That's exactly what Paul writes in verse 17. Let, hit, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's giving us a summary of Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Now, why would Paul have to say this? It's because his opponents were boasting in themselves. And even their supposed work was designed to bring praise to them, not to God. 
They missed the whole point of the gospel, which is to bring glory to God, not man. They were so busy commending themselves that they left out Jesus. And Paul brings us back to reality. It doesn't matter if we commend ourselves. It doesn't matter if others commend us. All that matters, he says, is whom God commends. Are you seeking the commendation of the Lord? Are you boasting in the Lord rather than what you have done? That must be your true boast. There is nothing wrong with boasting if we do it properly. Proper gospel boasting requires that we look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, knowing that we cannot save ourselves, but we are lost without him. The only way that you can be saved is by looking to Jesus in faith and trusting that he has paid for your sins on the cross. Only once you have done that, and if you haven't done that yet, then I call upon you now to do it, to start and focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust Him. Only then can you begin to live the life that God has created for you to live. Only then can you focus on others instead of yourself. Only then can you be humble. Only then can you delight in running in your lane. And then you will boast in the Lord, your creator, your redeemer. And you will give him all the glory. Let's pray.